the past two months, since the beginning of January, and we have, during that time, we have considered the existence and the exclusiveness of God, that God is, and that He alone is, is God. We're learning our technical things. It's good, okay. All right, and, uh, and so that He alone is God, um, and that He exists. Now, that sounds like a no-brainer. It should be just something that we sit there and go, duh. But the sad thing is, in, the, in this world, that's not a no-brainer. You know, there are many people who want to debate the fact that God is, um, and that, that there is even a God, and that some people want to state that God died, and that God got the process started, and then he just kind of went away, and, and, and things are just kind of ticking on their own. And uh, so it's an amazing thing. We saw that that's clearly not the case. We then considered the composition of God, that is, what is God made up of, and that God is both uh, a unity, a singleness, but God is also a threeness. And so we put that together, and we call it the triunity, or the trinity of God, and so that God has revealed himself, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but yet, one Godhead, there are three distinct personalities or individuals within the Godhead, and yet there's not three gods, it is one God who has revealed himself. And again, that is a struggle for many people, because they say that just seems to be a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction, it's a paradox. It's a paradox is something that seems to be a contradiction, it's just that we don't fully understand how it all happens. And so, I'm very limited, and we're going to talk about that again in just a moment when we talk about these attributes. I'm finite, but God is what? He's infinite. He's eternal. And so, I, I don't fully understand everything there is about God, and that's a good thing. Because if I understood more, th- more than God understood, then I would be God. And you should be very thankful that I'm not. Um, then we began looking at the attributes of God. And we talked about the fact that within these attributes of God, we're going to look at three different segments. We're going to look at natural attributes of God, then we're going to look at vocational attributes, or what I refer to as vocational attributes, so it fits within the context of an outline, right? And then finally, the moral attributes of God. We began looking at these natural attributes of God, coming looking at the sovereignty of God, and we'd spent two weeks looking at God's sovereignty, that God reigns over all things, and within the concept of God's sovereignty, we also saw that God, though he is sovereign, has given dominion to man. And so man, in a sense, has the ability to reign or to rule as well over the things that God has created, that we are the chief of God's creation, and he has given us the ability to do that. However, God being sovereign, he still has that what? The veto power. He reigns over all things, and so if, if he chooses for something to happen that is not happening, he can make that happen. If he chooses for something not to happen that we are seeking to make happen, he can make it not happen. Does, does that make sense? Okay, so God is sovereign over all things, and we discussed that. Um, and then, um, two weeks ago, or last week, I'm sorry, we began looking at the limitlessness of God, the limitlessness of God, and we considered that in the fact that God is eternal, and God is infinite. Eternal means that he is not limited by um, time. Infinite means that he's not limited by space. So God is not limited by either of these things, because they are created things. God, When God created, he created time. When God created, he created space. And so God is outside of those things, so he's eternal and he's infinite. And because he's eternal and he's infinite, he is also omniscient, which means that he knows everything, and he's also omnipresent. He's everywhere present at the same time. Now, what I didn't state last week, I forgot to kind of mention, is there's a word called ubiquitous, okay? Uh, That's kind of a a 75-cent word, but it's a fun word, okay? 
ubiquitous. Okay, and you can say that word. In fact, today, if you know that word, there's a thing called ubiquitous computing that, that they've been working on for the last decade or so. And ubiquitous computing is that it seems that computers are seemingly everywhere present at the same time. And so there's a, 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 a Xerox Park, I think it's called Xerox Park, out, um, in California where all the walls and everything have computers um, in them. And so, like, even underneath the coffee pot, it has a, an infrared that goes up into the, to the ceiling where there's a, um, a sensor. And so it, it, it recognizes the fact that the coffee pot has been turned on. And on everybody's computer, a little coffee pot icon comes up to let them know that fresh coffee is being brewed. And in two minutes, you can go down and get fresh coffee. Their telephone system, their, their telephone system is, is hooked into the computer system as well. And so instead of having a computer or a phone that rings in your office, you actually now, like Pavlov's dog, have your own special bell. And so that, you know, it's kind of like the cell phone technology, right? And so now you can put a different ringtone for every person so you know who's calling. If it's a business call, you can ignore it. You don't even have to pick it up to find out who it is because you know it's not somebody else, so you just ignore that ring. You know, so I know that when somebody in my family's calling because they have a special ring. So I make sure I answer that. If it's my family that's calling, if it's one of you, sorry, I may not answer. But anyways, um, yeah, huh? On my, on my previous phone, I was actually able to put a different tone in for the church. And so I had a tone for my family, a tone for the church, and then somebody who wasn't, it was just somebody I didn't know that was a business call. So I would answer the church, the church ring as well. But over there, you would have your own ring. And so what would happen is as you're going down the hallway, everybody's phone would begin to ring as you went down the hallway because it would follow you along. Now you say, how did they know where I was? Well, because you would have one of those little ID tags on now that have those little computer chips, and since all the walls had sensors in it, it would track where you were. You couldn't hide. I always wondered how many, how many people's ID tags were sitting on the, the, the toilet tank. Anyways, so, um, so it's the only way you get away from the tracking, you know? Anyways, but that's called ubiquitous computing because it seemed like the computer was what? Everywhere. It seemed like it was omnipresent, but it wasn't omnipresent. It just appeared to be. Satan is ubiquitous. Satan is not omnipresent. Do you get it? There's a big difference. The only, I say, say person, but you understand I'm not talking about a person. The only being, if, I hate to even call God a being, I guess, but he is a being, but the only being that is omnipresent, everywhere present at the same time is, is God. God. God alone is everywhere present at the same time. And because, again, he's everywhere present at the same time, he's all-knowing. He knows what you're thinking before you think it. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. So David says, before the word was on my tongue, you knew, God, what I was going to say. And again, as we talked about, that either all this understanding of God's limitless this can either be a time of rejoicing or a time of repentance. It can be a time of, of great challenge to you or a time of great rejoicing. And so you have to decide what it is. Today, what we want to continue on in these natural attributes and actually kind of finish the natural attributes here, and some will debate whether there's more, and we'll talk about that as a little bit when we go into the moral attributes. Um, some things I, I put under the confines of moral attributes where others would put under the confines of a natural attribute. And we'll, again, we'll discuss that. But today we want to kind of sum up the rest of these as well in um, what we've just done and in, in, in culminated here with um, the omnipotence of God. And why? Because the omnipotence of God refers to, to the limitlessness of God, if you would, as well. But the limitlessness of God when it comes to, to power, 
Okay? And that, that is that God's power is not limited by time, space, or matter. Again, why? Because God is the one who created time, space, and matter. Because God is eternal, and he's infinite. His power, then, is eternal and infinite, which means that his power is not limited by space or time. Now, you say, well, where did the matter come from, then, in there? Well, matter is that which exists within the confines of space and time. The minute God created, so in Genesis 1-1, we read that God created, right, the heavens and the earth. And the minute he created, matter is what we're talking about. So when he created, he created matter. But the minute you create matter, you have to place it where? In space with time. Okay? So, so though God is eternal, time, and he's infinite, space, or, yeah, space, he's also then limitless when it comes to matter. He's not limited by that which he has created. And I want to settle for... Uh, very quickly here, not spending much time on it, but the, the ignorant question of men, okay, and you know the question, can God ever create something then that is too big for him to, to, to hold? That is an ignorant question of foolish men. Because what have they forgotten? That God is? No, God is omnipotent, understand that, but why is he? Because he is infinite and eternal. He is beyond, he is outside, he is greater than his creation, so anything he could create, he would be what? He would be greater than it. And so it's one of those questions that someone's trying to get you to answer one way or the other, because if you say, can he create, you know, because you want to say he's so omnipotent that he can do that, so you say yes, and go, oh, really, he can create something he can't pick up? Or you say no, oh, he's really not omnipotent then. So it's one of these conundrum type things. They want you to answer, ask you this question that either way you answer it, you seem like you're going against what you really believe. And the fact is that, that, that's exactly right. God is eternal and he's infinite, and so that is just an ignorant question of a foolish man. And the fool has said what? He said, Do, not Do not answer a foolish man according to his folly, but answer a man according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And so the fact is that the answer to that is not to say yes or no. The answer to that is just to draw out his ignorance and his foolishness, because he knows not God. The only one who would ask a question like that is what? One who doesn't truly know God. Okay? So, but God's omnipotence is limitless, okay? He is not limited by time, space, or matter. In Psalm 62, verse 11, okay, and many of the verses are going to be up here today. We're going to turn to some, but I have got three pages of verses, okay? And, and I've actually skipped some of them on my sheet. So it tells you we've got a lot of verses here. But in Psalm 62, verse 11, so if you can move quickly, please look with them in the Bible with me. Otherwise, many of these will be up on the, the, um, the overhead as we go. Psalm 62, verses 9 to 11, we read, Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. How light is that? Pretty light, huh? Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Why? Because God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Power is in the possession of God. What is this stating? That if you have any power at all, it's only because what? God's given it to you. Because power is in the realm of God. Because he is God. Because he is God, all power belongs to him. Get it? This is why it's a natural attribute. It's not a moral attribute. It's not something that he's attained. It's not you know, something that he's chosen. It's something that he is. Because he is God, he has it all. He is God. 
And so in Romans 1, verse 20, we read that for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal, what? Power in his Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so that ignorant individual who's asking the foolish question, honestly, ultimately, is what? He's without excuse. Why? Because God has clearly revealed what he wants to, the world to know about himself. And very clearly, what, one of the things he wants the world to know is that he is all-powerful. That he is the one who contains all power. In fact, his power is eternal. And so is his Godhead. And that's what we looked at a little bit last week as well. Now, in the um, Genesis 18, 13-14, we have a little specific part here which God's talking about. And it's, Yahweh comes to Abraham. Do you remember this? When he was at the plains of Mamre. And so God comes in person. Yahweh comes in person to talk to Abraham. That must have been an, an awesome moment for Abraham. And so he says, and Yahweh says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, surely I shall, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. So what's the question that Yahweh is asking about himself? Is anything too hard? In other words, am I incapable, incapable of doing anything I what? Choose. So what's implied? I can do it. I am all-powerful. And now, in the Hebrew, there is the word Shaddai, which you all know, you know, the, the song, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, Adonai, right? So El Shaddai is God Almighty, okay? And so Shaddai is the word for Almighty, and you can see it means all-powerful. What's really interesting is the only time that this word is ever used in the Hebrew is referring to God. God alone is Almighty. And so we see in Genesis 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And in Joel, chapter 1, verse 15, and you have many other verses on your sermon note sheet, and there's even up and teen more. So if you get that, you know, um, eSword, it's free. Okay, download eSword from the web. It's free. You can do a search on El, uh, on Shaddai. Okay, you can go to the, the, to the King James with the plus that gives you the, the Strong's numbers, and, and you can look up the... Uh, chapter 17, verse 1, and you can see where it says, I am Almighty God, and beside the word Almighty will be the number. And you can get that number, and you can go to the King James with the plus and, and search on H with that number, and it'll bring up every occurrence of Shaddai. And you can check me out on it, okay? And, and, and show the fact that actually it is never being used other than it is with God. And so in Joel chapter 1, verse 15, which is the end part of the, the Old Testament, so this is from the beginning to the end here, we read, For alas, for the day, for the day of Yahweh is at hand, and it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. In fact, because God alone is referred, is the only one who's Almighty, when the Almighty is ever referred to, it's always referring to God. It became something that he was known by. He is the Almighty. Now, there is an equivalence of that in the Greek. It is the word pantokot. Krator, okay, which means all strength, might, or power. And again, guess what? The only time it is ever used in, in the New Testament, it is only used of God. So again, whenever Pentecrator is used, it is only used of God. And we see in the book of Revelation, from the beginning to the end, Revelation 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord. I believe it's Yahweh. 
because Yahweh declares that about himself through the prophet Isaiah as well. And so though it's not all capitalized, um, because it's the word kyrios, I think that it comes from Isaiah. And so though that is Jesus talking, I know that that is also Yahweh, because Yahweh declares it about himself. And so I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, saith Yahweh, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, isn't this interesting? Again, all these verses, you know, we can talk about the deity of Christ here too, but they're just wonderful things to talk about with the Mormons and the, and the Jehovah Witnesses and those who deny the deity of Christ. So there are many Messianic, quote-unquote, believers now that are truly not believers because they're denying the deity of Christ. So even though they refer to themselves as Messianic believers, they're not Messianic believers. They may be Messianic, but they're not believers because they don't believe in the true Messiah then. Remember, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I'm fearful that someone, just as, as Eve was deceived, deceived in the garden, you may very well deceive, and someone may come in with another Jesus, a different Jesus. So just because someone declares a Jesus, Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. So they can declare Jesus, but if they deny the deity of Christ, he's not my Jesus, because my Jesus is God. Do you get that? Okay, that's very important. So just because they say that they're a believer, they're not necessarily a believer if they don't believe the right thing. I mean, Mormons claim to be Christians. Mormons claim to be, um, in, 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 the, uh, in the military, they are placed in the confines as a, um, uh, you got Catholics and Protestants, Protestants, Protestants. Anyways, and so they're, they're under the classification of a Protestant, Mormons are. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's not a cult or anything, it's just they're Protestants because the military sees them as Christians like you and me, but they're not because they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And so in Revelation 9, 19, verse 6, we read, And I heard, as it were, the voice of great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunders, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. That's the same word, omnipotent, pantocrator, is the same word that is used for Almighty. So every place you see the word Almighty, you can bring in, put in the word what? Omnipotent. Isn't that interesting? That's what the word means. Almighty means having all might and all power, which means that you are omnipotent. Omnipotent. That's exactly right. You're omnipotent. And God is omnipotent. He is omnipotent. And so that's, I'm sure when it came to New King James, they didn't change that because why? Why? Because it handles Messiah. That's exactly right. It kind of rests. For the Lord Almighty reigns. No, it doesn't make sense. You've got to have the God omnipotent reigns. Anyways. Some of you are looking at me with blank stairs. You've got to listen to Messiah. You've got you to learn it. It's a great, great musical. All right. So, that is the fact that God is limited, limitless. Okay? However, I'm going to bring something out here and, uh, that makes you think God's omnipotent, omnipotence is limited. What? I thought you just said it was limitless. Remember, I said it's a paradox. Okay? Because God is limited in his omnipotence, but he's not limited by us. He's, uh, he's limited by himself, by his own moral attributes, his, his holiness, his love, his mercy, his righteousness, his justice. God will, will, will limit himself. And we read in, in Titus 1, just for an example, and we can go to others, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but we'll talk about it when we come to the moral attributes of God. But in Titus chapter 1, we read, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, in the acknowledgement of the truth which God accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who what? Cannot lie, promised before time began. So, even though God is, 
is fully omnipotent, and he can do whatever he chooses to do because he's sovereign and omnipotent, he still is confined by, by his own moral attributes. And because God has determined that he will not lie, that God he is faithful and that he is truthful, therefore he will not, even though he has the power, the capacity to do something, the ability to do it, he will limit himself based upon his own honesty, his own integrity, his own righteousness, his own truthfulness, his own faithfulness, his own holiness, his own love. Does that make sense? Now, one of the places that we see this is John 3.16. For God so what? So loved the world. He has such great love, right? For God in this manner loved the world. How did he love the world? That he gave his only begotten son. Well, why did he give his only begotten son? Because of his righteousness and his holiness. Because though God may love us with a great and, and powerful love, he is still limited by his righteousness and his justice and his holiness. And the fact is that if you sin, if you rebel against God, the wages of that is what? Is death. Is, is condemnation. And so therefore, the just sentence has to, be, has, has to be dealt with, has to be made. And so God then works within his own justice to provide the payment. That's exactly right. So that we can have fellowship with him. And so even though God in his omnipotence can allow anybody he chooses to come into heaven, he still then limits his omnipotence by his own righteousness and his own justice and his own holiness. Do you get that? Okay. We'll talk about that more as we come to moral attributes. But not only is he limited but according to his moral attributes, he's also limited according to his eternal plan. God has a purpose and God has a plan. We've talked about that with the sovereignty of God, that we cannot do anything that's outside of his plan. Okay? And so he gives us a dominion. He gives us the right to be able to operate. But God has a plan. Revelation, the book of Revelation, as we looked at that last year, will happen as God declared it will happen. It doesn't matter what you try to do, not saying that you would, to, to change it. You can't change what God has decreed is already going to happen. Does that make sense? I mean, because honestly, you trying to change what you're going to do tomorrow may already have been in the book anyway. That God has already worked the fact that you knew that you were going to change, you were going to do something else in the light that you were going to hear that God was sovereign and that you would do something as a result of that, and he's already worked that in. You can't, you can't outthink God. Does that make sense? Okay? So in that, God, though, is limited by his own plan. Okay? He has a plan, and so therefore, though he could work outside of his plan, he chooses not to because he, is, he has his plan and he is also faithful to it. And so in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we read, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Could God have spared James from being beheaded? Yes, we know that because he delivered Peter and John from the same prison. Right? He sent an angel, took him out. He delivered Paul and Silas from the Philippian jail with an earthquake. Could he have delivered James? The answer is yes. He was not powerless to do that. He was powerful to do that. But he chose to allow it to happen. Because he had a purpose in that. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we read, And lest I should, this is Paul, talking about his, his infirmity, he says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations that, you know, in other words, he was given, and so unless I became prideful, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might be departed from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength, my power, is made perfect in weakness, in your weakness. 
Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So did, did God have the ability to heal Paul, who he was working through to heal others? Isn't that an amazing thing? You know, he's using Paul to heal other people, to heal lame men, to, to heal uh, blind people. It's an amazing thing what God did through Paul. But Paul had an infirmity, and he went to God, and God said what? Eh, sorry, not for you. Because my strength is made manifest in your weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast. I will boast in my infirmities. I will rejoice in my weakness. Why? Because in that, the power of Christ, the power of God, is made manifest. So, um, so God's omnipotence, it's limitless. It's not to be confined. But it also is limited, but not by us, but by himself. Now, what I want to look at here for the rest of this is the, the display of God's omnipotence. First of all, his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness is displayed over the nations. Turn with me back to the book of Joshua, chapter 10. Joshua 10, and again, some of these are going to be longer passages, and I have them um, printed out for myself here. And so, um, but turn with me, if you will, to John, Joshua chapter 1, or chapter 10, I'm sorry. And this is the part where we've got the five kings coming against uh, Gibeon, where, where um, the Israelites are coming to defend Gibeon. And beginning in verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass when Adonazedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city. Now you think that, this is, that the response here would be what? That if you understood how Israel is wipe, walking through the land under the power of God, and how Gibeon, a great and powerful city, has, has come and, and made peace with Israel, you try to make peace too. What about Adon and Zedek? It doesn't happen that way, does it? They feared greatly, verse 2, because Gibeon was a great city, and like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty, therefore Adon and Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hohem, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lechish, and Debir, the king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the children of Israel. Therefore, the, in other words, we're not going to pick on Israel, we're going to pick on Gibeon. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of uh, Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lechish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and they camped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua sent it from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, all the mighty men of valor. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night. So they, they had a forced march all night, no sleep, so they probably up the day before, didn't know they were going to do it, sleeping, or walking all night, right? How tired do you think they are at, at 5 or 6 in the morning? Uh, they're walking all night. They're beat, right? Or you'd think they would be beat, but no, they're not going to be beat. Why? Because God's strengthening them. God's giving them power. God said, I'm going to hand these people into your hand, okay? So verse 10, so Yahweh routed them before Israel, killed them with us great slaughter, Gibeon, 
chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Ezekiah and Machedah. Now, I want you to read that again. Look at verse 10. Who did this? Yahweh did. Yahweh routed them. Yahweh killed them. <coughs> Yahweh chased them. And Yahweh struck them down. Note that the, the, the subject of the sentence never changes. It's not Israel doing this. It's Yahweh doing it. And so verse 11, And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent at Bet-Horon, that Yahweh cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of all Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, in moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yashur? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for a whole day. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that Yahweh heeded the voice of a man, for Yahweh fought for Israel. Do you get what's happening here? When, when God is fighting on behalf of Israel over the nations, what, what five kings coming against, against, the, against Gibeon, what, choice, what chance did they have? Not a chance in the world, or a chance in the universe, not a chance in eternity, not a chance in infinity. Because the one who was omnipotent was after them. The one who was all-powerful said, it's not a battle among men. It's my battle. And God himself slayed them. God himself chased them. God himself threw hailstones at them. Now, he might have had the angels throwing them down. I always, I always love to be in this... To think about this one being in the spiritual realm and, and watching the hailstones being, being fired down. Got another one! Got another one! Got another one! And it says that more Amorite military guys were killed by the hailstones than were killed by the sword. Guess how many Israelite soldiers were killed? Zero. Indiscriminate hailstones, huh? No collateral damage. Now, I mean, think about it. I mean, there's one thing to think about a hailstorm coming and knocking down the enemy. It's another thing to think about your Israelite army in the midst of that, the Amorite army fighting with them and the hailstones coming down and hitting the guy next to you and not hitting you. And how big do you think those hailstones have got to be to be wiping these things out? I remember, it was, a year and, was it a year and a half ago we came back from Macon? Or last year? Two years ago? You go, look, look at my van. I mean, the reason it looks like a golf ball is because of this. We came through a front that had tornadoes on the front. And, and anybody knows about the, that front, on that front there is hail. I always thought people were laughing when they talked about golf ball-sized hail and softball-sized hail and stuff like that. We literally had baseball and softball-sized hail hit, hit the van. I mean, I was fearful for the guys. I told them to get in the middle of the van. You know, we had other kids with us, too. I said, get in the middle of the van put the blankets up along the windows. And we just kept driving. I mean, there were people pulling off, but there was no cover. And I'm thinking, why am I going to sit here and, and, and be a target? This doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm, I'm hitting this thing, and I'm getting out of here, you know, as fast as we can. But I, began, I understood this passage of Scripture that day. I thought, I can't imagine being outside of my van with an ice ball the size of a baseball or softball being hit, being thrown at me, far exceeding what a major league pitcher can throw. 
Matt was talking about just a couple weeks ago when we had this, the snowstorm. They got it down in Mount Vernon, too, all the way down there in South Georgia. And so some of their 90-mile-an-hour 90, 90 pitchers were making, were making snowballs and firing them at people, you know. And what did you say? What? It hurt. <laughs> and I said, man, it's stupid. I mean, can you imagine if they, if they, I mean, some of those guys, when they fire 90 miles an hour, are kind of erratic, you know? Well, you know, and here they are, they're, they're trying to be in the batter, you know? I mean, what if they didn't get you in the hip, but they got you in the head? You know, that, man, that, 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 that would be, that'd be nasty. Anyways, but, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I was fearful. I mean, I was, I was keeping my hand up for the, for the glass if it broke, you know? Anyways, but that's, but, but God is all powerful. He protected me as I went through. We just dented the van, but not us. And, uh, but my, my, my God is all powerful. Look what he did to these nations. Look what he did to these kings. It was incredible how he wiped them out. Oh, I messed up. And in Matthew chapter 10, in Matthew 10, come on now. We're going to get there. I'm hitting my button too much. All right, in Matthew chapter 10, in verses 21 to 28, okay, you can turn there if you want, but in Matthew 10, verses 21 to 28, we read about Jesus talking a little bit about end time stuff, and he says, now brother will deliver a brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be what? Will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of if they have called the master of the house of Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And whatever you hear in the ear, preach in the housetops. And do not fear those who what? Kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, before we comment on this, I wanted to take you then back to the Old Testament. Again, a passage that we talked about a week or two ago, when we talked about the Assyrian army coming up against Israel. You remember that? And you remember Sennacherib making all these, these boasts about, about Yahweh and about, you know, he can just... You know, there's no other gods that have been able to destroy him, and so you know, what is the don't don't let don't let Hezekiah deceive you and, and think that Yahweh's going to deliver you. You know, no other god has been able to deliver you. And, and Yahweh comes down and, and speaks through Isaiah, right to Sennacherib, and says, "Who do you think you are? You know, you're just a hammer in my hand. I chose to use you as judgment upon the nations, and now here you are speaking against me. So guess what? I know where you live, and you're going to go back the same way you came." And so we read that a couple days later, a short time later, that what happened to the Assyrian army? The angel of death came in and 185,000 soldiers were killed in one night. And so Sennacherib fled back to, to Assyria where his own sons killed him in the, in, the, in the temple of Ramon, his god. Okay, God is more powerful in the, in the terms of, of veggie tales. Than what? The boogeyman. He's greater than Godzilla and the monsters on TV. Okay? God is all powerful. He's even bigger than Sennacherib. 
God is all powerful. He's even bigger than Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when we talked about that in the sovereignty and how he caused Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of kings, who was the most powerful man on the earth, to, to, um, to, to live like, a, like an animal for seven years. God is bigger than the nation of Egypt, who was the world power at the time, and he caused the entire army of Egypt to fall in what? Into the Red Sea. And so God then comes to us in this passage as Jesus on the earth, right? Jesus is God in the flesh. And he says to us, he says, listen, there's going to come a time when there's going to be, because of my name, family members are going to go against each other. And you are going to be persecuted by the what? By the nations. The nations are going to call you evil. Listen, they they said that, that the power that I had was by Satan, by Beelzebub. And the master or the servants are not above their masters. And so if they said that this was what I was coming from, what do you think they're going to say about you? So those who are really of God are going to be claimed to be of the devil, and those who are of the devil in those days are going to be claimed to be what? Of God. They're going to call what is good evil, and what is evil they're going to call good. It shouldn't surprise you the way the world is going right now. It's just the way Jesus said so. And Jesus said, listen, the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one, said that they will persecute you, and you will flee. And wherever you flee to, they'll do what? They're going to follow you, which means that they're going to do what? They're going to persecute you there too. But he says that in the, as a whole, though, in the, in the midst of all that, even though in my sovereignty I, I've allowed this, and I could have delivered you if I chose to, because clearly we have plenty of indications that God could deliver us, right? That in the end, I will deliver you. What's the ultimate deliverance? Salvation. That when you die, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, that in the end, I'm still the one who's going to deliver you. Don't fear those who can destroy your body but rather fear the omnipotent one. Don't fear the one who has limited power, the one who has power that I've allowed him to have, but rather fear the one who has all power and live for me. Because ultimately, they have no power at all. Remember, we talk about sovereignty. They have no authority. Unless I have what? I've given it to them. And so if you are being persecuted, back to the sovereignty of God, in the midst of God's omnipotence, in omniscience, he knows about it. He's there. He has the power to stop it, and he's chosen not to because in his sovereignty, he's determined that is what is best according to his plan. And he allows it in your life. Then you should have confidence because God is still what? On his throne, and he's all-powerful. So don't have anxiety. Don't, don't, don't worry about when this happens because God has already told you what? It's going to happen. Okay? God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful over the nations. Secondly, we see it displayed over nature, nature itself. And we see in 2 Kings chapter 20, right after this time, when God delivers um, Israel, or Judah, from Assyria and Sennacherib, he comes to Hezekiah and tells Hezekiah that Hezekiah is going to die. Hezekiah had a sickness, and, <clears throat> and he asked Isaiah to talk to Yahweh. Isaiah comes back, and Yahweh says, this is a sickness unto death. Hezekiah turns to the wall and he cries out to God for, for deliverance and Yahweh has mercy on him. Yahweh hears his prayer. An amazing thing. And so he sends Isaiah back. And so Isaiah said, this is a sign to you 
from Yahweh, that Yahweh will do the thing which he has spoken. In other words, that he's going to heal you. Okay? He's going to give you 15 more years of life. And Hezekiah says, how do I know this is going to happen? Isaiah says, well, this is how you're going to know. God has given you the opportunity to choose a sign. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees, or shall it go backwards 10 degrees? In other words, should we continue the sun going the way it normally goes for 10 degrees or 10 minutes, or should it go backwards? And so Hezekiah says the same thing that you and I would say, and that is, well, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go 10 degrees. In other words, how do I know that's really anything? Because it's going to go that way anyway, right? Or, no, let, but let the shadow go backwards 10 degrees. Then I will what? I'll really know because what? The shadow never goes backwards. The shadow always goes this way. I mean, which way would the shadow go? It goes clockwise, doesn't it? It would never go counterclockwise. Okay? So, Isaiah the prophet cried out to Yahweh, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backwards. He brought it backwards 10 degrees, by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. So think about that. What did God just do? He rolled time backwards. You know, we talk about the theory of relativity, and we talk about the speed of light, and what could it be if we could, we could, we could increase the speed of light, and we, we would be able to go past the speed of light? You know, would, would, we, would we decrease in age? Would we go backwards in history? And all these theories and hypotheses and, and all these things else that people try to conjecture, this sci-fi stuff. You know what? On that day, God did it, but people didn't go backwards. They st- uh, yeah, now yeah, everybody's going to kind of go, huh? Well, think about it. Didn't time didn't go backwards. It just happened right there. All of a sudden, the shadow went back. Yeah, that's mind-boggling, isn't it? It happened. Why? Because God is all-powerful, even over the very creation of nature that he created himself. Isn't that awesome stuff? Now, how does that apply for me and you? Well, you know, again, Jesus, in, in, in Mark chapter 4, he's out there on the, on, the, on the ocean, or the ocean, I'm sorry, on the Sea of Galilee with all of his fishermen buddies, right, who, who have been working the same lake for all their lives. You know, they're, they're, they're not you and me, they're not, you know, I mean, if Greg Moffat was here, you know, I could even pick on Greg and say that he's the experienced fisherman here. You know, Devin's been out there quite a bit, but, but the reality is that none of us were as experienced fishermen as, as Peter and James and John. I mean, they, they made their living out on that lake, right? Well, here they are. It says, now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and the other little boats were also with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that they were, it was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, right? And so they come to him, they woke him, and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They're afraid. These big, burly fishermen who have spent their life on this water, they're, they're, they think they're going down. This is it. This is the one they said, teacher, aren't you worried? That we're dying? Jesus arose and did what? He rebuked the wind. He said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Could you imagine being on the boat that day? I mean, what a coincidence. That he would speak shalom, and at the moment he would say shalom, the wind would stop. I mean, how often have you done that? Just a couple times. Did it stay stopped for all the time? 
No, yeah, no, I didn't. I mean, I could have done that yesterday. We were out in the ball field, and, you know, when it wasn't windy, it felt good. But when the wind kicked up, boy, it was cold, you know. And, you know, I could have, I could have said, peace. And, you know, <laughs> according to statistics, somewhere along the line, I might have hit it once, you know. But then a couple seconds later, what would have happened? It would have kicked right back up again. You know what? It didn't kick back up. Because God, again, is all-powerful. He is more powerful, again, than the very nature which he has created. Well, he said, yeah, you have a little faith. That's exactly right. But that means that, for the sake of my mom and dad who are with us today, that God is even bigger than a what? A 48-inch snowstorm. <laughs> Sometimes we look at things, and, and the way nature's going, we look at hurricanes, you know, the, the Katrina thing with coming into New Orleans. We, we look at the tsunami that was approaching uh, Hawaii because of the earthquake that was in Chile, which was the largest recorded earthquake, and da 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 and we think what? Good grief, this is beyond God. And the reality is what? It isn't. That's exactly right, Andrew. It is not beyond God. It's not even close to the omnipotence of God. God is greater than than anything that nature, quote-unquote, can come up with. Because nature, quote-unquote, doesn't come up with it. So he tells Job in chapter 40, Do you know where I store the ice? Do you know where the lightning comes from? Tell me, oh you wizened one who wants to stand before God. Were you there the day that I created it? Do you know where I keep all this stuff at? Come on, big guy. You don't want to have your day in front of me. You got it. Talk to me. And we kind of laugh at Job a little bit on that one. But how many times do we live like that? How many times do we question God's sovereignty and God's omnipotence when we look at what's happening in the world? But again, Jesus has said that in the last days, there are going to be what? There are going to be perilous times. Earthquakes are going to increase in number. There are going to be famines. There's going to be pestilence. And it is not outside of God's control. God in his omnipotence has caused and allowed it because of judgment upon man, because of his justice and his holiness, which again we'll talk about in later weeks to come. God's omnipotence is also displayed over disease. And in Matthew chapter 9, up on the screen, you can read if you can turn there if you want. But we read that so Jesus arose and followed him, and that is um, talking about Jairus, who was the, the ruler of the synagogue, right? So, but as he's following Jairus to go to to, to raise his daughter, which um, it was another miracle by itself. But just in 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 the line, I mean, I just think this is always amazing. I mean, it's just Jesus is on his way to do a va- a huge miracle, right? And so this is just in the course of the moment here. And so did disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. She didn't even talk to him. She didn't even say, teacher, heal me. She just came up by faith and touched the hem of his garment, right? And what happened? Because she said to herself, if only I may touch the garment, I shall make me well. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now Luke, when he records this, or Mark, when he records this, Jesus turns around and says what? Who touched me? I felt power go out from me. You what? I felt power. The omnipotent one felt power going out, being, being taken from him. This is kind of cool stuff, actually. Think about it. Because God's not so all-powerful that his power is out of control. 
he knows even when just a, t- a little bit of it is being, being sapped out, right? And he turns around, and Jairus is probably fearful at this point because he's worried that someone sapped God, Jesus' energy and he may not have enough energy to heal his daughter now. And he turns around and Jairus says, don't sweat it, man. Don't, don't, just, just, just believe. <laughs> We're not, we'll get to you in a moment here, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so, did he know that this woman was going to come and touch him? Yes, he's on mission. This didn't take him by surprise. And, it, and, he, and he wasn't surprised. He wasn't worried about who it was. He knew exactly who she was. So he turns to her and says, who touched me? And we're, we're told that she does what? She knew that she was going to be found out, so she says, it's me. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. But here's a woman who's had a flow of blood for 12 years. Under, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we talked about the man who was born blind. He had been blind all his life. 38 years. Blind. And Jesus heals him. Amazing. Creates eyes. Heals the eyes. Puts, puts the, the things that were missing into his eyes. Maybe it was retina damage. I don't know what it was, but God did it. Jesus did it. God in the flesh did it. When Peter and James come to the, to the temple, or Peter and John, I'm sorry, having no money, and they see the lame man, right? And the lame man is asking for alms, and they turn around and they say, silver and gold have we not, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And what happens to the lame man? He gets up and walks. He went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and... I love the kids' songs, aren't they? Great songs. But did Peter and John do it? No, because later when they're taken to the Sanhedrin, they said, why do you look at us? We didn't do it. We're just simple fishermen. I know they didn't say that, but that's read between the lines. What they're saying, look at us. We don't have this ability. But just so you know, it was who? It was Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. You're not persecuting us, you're persecuting Jesus. It's in his name that we've done these things. He's the one who's doing these things. Isn't this exciting stuff? What does that mean? That God's power is still with us today. God is still able to, if he chooses to, by his sovereignty, to heal any infirmity, any disease, any sickness, any disability that you have. And if he has allowed the infirmity, the sickness, the disability in your life, he has allowed it for a reason, because he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful, and he can, he can prevent anything from attacking you. James 5, we read, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I think Yahweh again, probably Jesus. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord, Yahweh, will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. People ask me, do I believe in the gift of healing? The answer is yes. Unequivocally, yes. I don't believe in it the way the charismatic churches are using it. I don't believe in the name it, claim it stuff. But I believe that God is all-powerful and that God, if he chooses to, can heal people. But he's not backing charlatans who are doing it for their own glory, for their own betterment. Think about it. When Jesus went out, 
and Jairus came up and says, can you come heal my daughter? And Jesus said, well, how much money do you got? Will you feed me and my disciples for the, for the next month? Did he take an offering? No, he didn't take an offering. I hate that. I mean, that's why we have the basket in the back, you know? Your, your offerings are a personal act of worship to God. I hate when I go to places and they have two or three offerings. Usually they're what? Baptist churches. I mean, it's just, that's why we're a Bible church, right? <laughs> but we are Baptists. Take a second pick on us. Listen, freely you have received what? Freely give. If God gives you the ability to heal people, then what? Do it for free. Go heal. But you know what I noticed when Jesus was on the earth? He didn't heal everybody. He didn't just walk around touching people. There was still a purpose in the plan of God for the healings. And just as we saw earlier, when it came to Paul, Paul said what? I prayed three times to be healed. But God said what? That's not my purpose. That's not according to my plan. And so for some of you, you may have infirmities, you may have diseases, you may have sicknesses, you may have disabilities that God has chosen in his sovereignty, in his omnipotence, not to heal, not to get rid of. And you can be assured that God's got a purpose for it. You may not understand it, but God's got a purpose for it. Because if God wanted you healed, he has the power to do that. God's omnipotence is also displayed over demons. In Matthew chapter 17, we read about the, the, uh, the man of the gatherings that Jesus goes and, 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 and has an appointment with. He goes across the, the lake just to see this guy. And we read in Matthew 17, beginning at verse 14, it says, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. Oh, I'm sorry, this is the, the, the one with epilepsy. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often fail, falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we do it? Jesus said, Because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Jesus had power over demons. In fact, as I was talking about the, 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 the demoniac of the gatherings, which I, I don't have on the, sh- the screen for us, there was what? He was called Legion, for in him were many demons. And, and, and Jesus cast them out and sent him into the swine, and the, and, the, and, the, and the herd of swine ran down the hill and into the, into the lake, and destroyed themselves. An amazing thing. God is over those. Ephesians chapter 6, how does it apply to us? Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, we, we're told to what? Put on the whole armor of God, but before we're told to put on the whole armor of God, we're told what? What does it say in verse 10? Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Why? Because he is omnipotent. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. And so don't be strong in yourself, because if you're strong in yourself, what's going to happen? You're going to fall. He that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. You're going you're to be destroyed. But be, be strong in 
the Lord. Be strong in Yahweh, in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be, not be able to fall against the, the wiles of the devil. And then he goes on talking about how we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against all these spiritual powers. You are wrestling against spiritual powers. Even today, there's no doubt in my mind, you are wrestling in some, some facet against spiritual powers. I believe right now, right here, there are angels and demons that are probably wrestling um, over someone or, or individuals. So whether you're going to pay attention to this message, whether you're going to, maybe for someone here, this may be something that's really important for you right now, to really grab a hold of the God's omnipotence and the rest in the security of it. And the devil doesn't want you to do that. The devil wants you to believe that God is not omnipotent. The devil wants you to believe he's not ubiquitous, but he is omnipresent, that he is omnipotent, and that he has more power and more opportunities than God does. Is that true? No, it's a lie. And so right now, there's that war that's going on. And how can you have victory over the devil? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. You will not have it in and of yourself. You're supposed to put on the whole armor of God. And so as I put on that, that belt of truth, as I put on that breastplate of righteousness, as I put on the, the, the shoes, the sandals that, that are fit with the gospel of peace, and as I put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith, those are all things that come from God. They're not from within myself. It's not my own capacities. It's not my own abilities. It's not my own prowessness. But my abilities, my strategies, my prowessness is zeroed out. It's only when I stand in that of God that I will have ultimate victory over Satan. And so for some of you, there's this, the, 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 the term we like to use today of, um, oh, the sin that easily besets us, we call that a, uh, what kind of sin? What's the, the big charismatic word now? My mind just went on vacation. Um, oh, some of you know it, come on. Help me out. It's the one that you, how do you overcome these? Oh, it's like a castle. My mind's coming up with a note. Strongholds, strongholds, thank you. Whew. You think that'd be an easy word to remember. Anyways, that you, you've got to cast down the strongholds. Well, listen, how strong is a stronghold? Is it stronger than God? No. Why, why are the strongholds still strongholds? Because we give them place, and we're not turning to who? The one who is more powerful than that stronghold. Now, here's something to chew on. To chew on. If God chooses not to just tear down that stronghold for you, like he chose not to drive out all of the, 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 the countries that were before Israel, because he said to Israel, now you what? Now you go out and run the rest of them out. That means that God says, I'm not going to do it, but I think that what? Or not that I think, I know that you can do it. Because God will not allow me to be tempted or tried beyond what I am able to bear up. But will with that trial or temptation, that, that troublesome moment, Make a way for me to escape. And so if there's a stronghold that you earnestly have beseeched God to remove and God has not chosen to remove it, he's saying, listen, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You and me are a great team. You can do this. And I'm here to help you out. I'll give you the hand to overcome that stronghold. Again, do you believe it? 
do you believe that God is omnipotent, that God is all-powerful, and that he can enable you to overcome that thing? He is omnipotent over death. John 11, 14 to 44, that's the passage where Jesus is talking to, to Martha and Mary, where Lazarus is dead, and he tells his disciples, he says, Lazarus is dead, but I'm happy, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad for your sake that we weren't there. Because, you know, clearly if I was there, I could have what? I could have healed him. In fact, when he goes there, Martha says to him, he says, Lord, if you would have come, you could have healed him. He wouldn't have died. In fact, Mary, the first thing Mary says when she sees him is what? Boy, if you'd only been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus turns around and says to him, listen, this is for even greater glory. Do you believe that if I want to, that he can be raised from the dead? And Martha says what? Lord, I, I, I know that the Father will give you anything that you ask, even now. And I know, but then she turns around and says what? And I know that in the last day he will rise. Jesus says what? No, no, you don't get it. That's not what I just said. Do you believe that even now, whatever I ask will be given to me? And then he turns around and says what? Roll the stone away. And then everybody turns around and says what? Don't do that. He stinks by this time. Wait, do you not get what I just said to you? I just said that God's going to give me whatever I ask. Do you believe it? Do you think that I'm more powerful than even death itself? But though in the words they were saying yes, in their actions they were saying what? No, because when they went to roll the stone away, they said what? By this time he stinks. They weren't praising God that, God, that Jesus, God on the earth, was going to raise their brother from the dead. They're thinking, this is going to stink. I don't know. I wasn't there. Anyways, I don't know how Jesus did it. Maybe he put some, 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 yeah, what, what is it, Febreze with it, you know, and, and, he, and, he, and he took away the stink. I don't know. And um, all I know is that he stood at the door and he said, Lazarus, and he made sure that I've heard this preach before, and I like this part, so I'm going to do it. Lazarus, arise. And the reason he said Lazarus, because if he just said the dead to arise, I mean, there'd be dead people rising all over the, all over the city, you know? Anyways, so, he's, so he tells the one that he wants to rise. I mean, he's just picking one guy, and everybody else in the dead saying, wait, wait, what about us? Anyways, but he says, Lazarus, arise. And, and here comes this guy hopping out, you know? I mean, think about it, because he's wrapped, right? So he's not walking. He's probably doing the pogo stick coming out of the, 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 the tomb. You know, and he's blind doing it because his face is wrapped too. What an awesome miracle by itself. Okay, the baby steps, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, anyway, he's coming out. Maybe I'm worried. I just like to, I like to picture some of these things sometimes. You know, I mean, guy's got a sense of humor at times. Can you see the people all standing here? You know, how long did it take for this dead man to get off of the, the table and to be able to walk himself or hop himself to the door? I mean, I'm sure this is a dramatic pause. This is a dramatic moment. You know, and all of a sudden, here he comes out the door, you know, looking like the mummy coming out of Egypt, you know. And, um, and so he says, okay, unwrap him, would you? Quit standing around. Unwrap the guy, you know. God is more powerful than death itself. And in John chapter 20, we read about when, when Jesus comes back in their midst. All the disciples are gathered together in this upper room, right, and, and they're first, not this occurrence that's on the screen, but the first one is they're up there and they're just kind of mourning a little bit, you know, and Jesus comes back and he tells them, you know, peace be unto you, my peace I leave with you, as the Father has given me, so I give unto you. And then a week later he comes back, right? Now they've told Thomas that Jesus come back because Thomas wasn't there and Thomas says what? I don't believe it. You guys, you, you know, you just swept up with your, 
your, your psychology thing here. You just wanted to believe that he's alive, and there was just mass hallucination happening, right? You lied to me before, yeah. So, so anyway, so there they are in the upper room. Thomas is with them, and I picture Jesus coming in right behind him. You know, he's not limited by the walls. I don't know how he got in in any way, whether he descended through the ceiling or whatever. But I, I kind of picture him coming in behind Thomas and tapping him on the shoulder as Thomas is saying, I won't believe it unless I put my fingers in, his, in the holes of his hand and I put my hand in the hole in his side. And all of a sudden he feels a tap on his shoulder. You know, he's wondering why all, everybody else's face is going, <gasps> you know. And uh, like, you know, yeah, okay, so you think I'm boasting, I'm proud here. And then all of a sudden it's like tap, tap, tap. And he turns around. And there's a reaction. He falls on his face before Jesus' feet, and he says, My Lord and my, my God. And Jesus accepts the worship. And he turns to him and says, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those who will not see, and yet they will believe. That's you and me. Do you believe? And this is, I, I'm sure you're all going to say yes. But do you believe that God is omnipotent? over death itself. That God has the power over death. And the answer to that is, come on, yes. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, with the part of our Bible reading this morning, how that in, as, at, in Adam all die, so in Christ, what? All shall be made alive. As in Adam all die. Not just believers. Now this is important. It doesn't just say believers will die. It says that all will die. And then it uses the same analogy, the same parallelism, the saying that all shall be what? All the sins of Adam shall be made alive. Even those who are unbelievers are going to be made alive. It doesn't talk about eternal life as we refer to eternal life, eternal salvation. The fact is that everybody on the face of the earth will exist for all of eternity. This is important. We don't believe in nihilism, like the Jehovah Witnesses believe in it. Jehovah Witnesses believe those who are 144,000 will, will continue on, right? But if you're not one of those 144,000, if you're not one of the chosen, you're going to have annihilation. You're just going to cease to exist. You go in the grave and that's it. The Word of God teaches that every individual who has ever been created, whoever's had a soul placed in him, will exist for all of eternity. I believe that goes for all the miscarried babies, too. Because they are what? They are life. So I have another child in heaven. I look forward to, to meeting. I don't know if it's a boy or a girl. But I know I have eight kids, not seven kids. And one day, I'll meet that child. But it won't be my child, because then we'll be like the angels, right? We're neither giving and receiving a marriage, but we'll be brothers or sisters, whatever. We're brothers in the Lord at that point. It'd be kind of an awesome thing. God is over death. Do you believe it? Satan will come and want to make you afraid of death. But you don't have to fear death. Because you can't kill me. Think about that. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I can't kill you. I just live in this tent. And one day this tent will stop to exist. But I won't. You can't see me. You see the tent I live in, but you can't see me. That's why racism and all that kind of stuff, get rid of it. Because that's only a judgment based upon what? A tent. So I've got an Ozark Trail, and you've got a, uh, you've got a Cabela's. 
Big deal. It doesn't matter what kind of tent you got, how big the tent is, how small the tent is, what color the tent is, how many rooms the tent has. You know, some of us got a lot of rooms, you know. Anyways, it only matters of what's inside. Because God is omnipotent over death itself. Where are you going to spend the rest of your eternity? Because you will be eternal. It's displayed then over sin as well. In Matthew chapter 9, we read about the boy who was a paralytic, and his four friends brought him to Jesus. And they couldn't get in the door because of the press of the crowd. And so they, they tore the tiles off the top of the roof. They tore the roof off so they could lower, lower this young man to Jesus. And Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the young man, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the crowd was filled with wonder, and they said, Who is this that has the authority or the power to forgive sins? And Jesus said, Listen, just so you know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins, is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and take your bed and walk? But so you know it, I tell you, rise up and take your bed and walk. Jesus has the power to forgive your sins. We're told in 1 John chapter 1, if you say you have no sins, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you say you have not sinned, you, you make God a liar, and his word is not in you. My children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have, a, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ, for it is the power, the dunamis, the dynamite of God. That's the word power, is dunamis. It's like dynamite, it's, it's explosive. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and for the Greek. Do you believe that God's omnipotence is over your sin, over your decadence, over your evilness? 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, it is the dunamis of God. It is the power of God. And then finally, in Romans 8, 38-39, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to what? Separate us. That once God has saved me by his power, he has delivered me from the hand of sin, from the, from the sting of sin, from the sting of death. Nothing can take me out of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Because he is omnipotent. There is nothing, including myself, that is more powerful than God. I can't even jump out of his hand. People always like to say, okay, nothing can take me out of his hand, but what if I jump out of his hand? Sorry. If these things can't do it, you can't do it either. So, the omnipotence of God should bring you great confidence and assurance. Paul says, I can do all things. Then you like it? That's a little selfishness there, right? I can do all things. But you've got to finish it out, right? Through Christ who strengthens me. So what's the point? I can't do all things. I can't do anything. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, where is the focus of your abilities? It should be 
in Christ. It needs to be in Christ. If you are leaning upon your own understanding, trusting in your own abilities, in your own prowessness, you will fail and you will fall. But if you're looking to God, and if it's something that God desires for you to accomplish, then he will give you the power to accomplish it as well. We are getting ready to to transition into communion, a time when we celebrate the power of God over sin and death. And we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, and Deanna says, So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how does he attain that victory? Through his omnipotence, through his power. Let's take some time to go before the Lord in prayer, preparing your heart for communion.